Hello and welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary. This week I spoke with Eckhart Tolle. When I say I spoke with, I mean I asked in the two-hour period three questions. Now that's not a complaint because this is Eckhart Tolle. And I did think briefly for a moment, even though you're not meant to think, that's part of his key teaching, stay present in the moment, no necessity for constantly running rhymes and narratives in your mind. Like, I did think this is the guru tradition. I felt like it was a transmission and that I was on receive. And I hope you get that transmission too, a transmission of awakened consciousness. Eckhart Tolle has introduced millions to the freedom of living in the present moment. The New York Times has described him as the most popular spiritual author in the United States. And the Watkins Review has named him the most spiritually influential person in the world. What? What about me? Oh, no, him. <laughs> Should be Eckhart Tolle. And, and listen, here's the thing, if you want it. Eckhart's Conscious Manifestation Online course starts June 25th at EckhartTolle.com. Eckhart shows us how, in this time of challenge and accelerated change, we have an opportunity to manifest from the from this into an awakened state of consciousness. Sorry, I stammered there. It's just as usual, this script was written by Jenny Mae Finn, who frequently blunders her way over a keyboard i think using at times her chin <laughs> snout her pierced snout as a typing instrument as a typing utensil we're including a link to this brilliant course on the show page where you can learn more details this is a bloody good episode you'll enjoy it here's some comments on the, our last podcast with kehindi andrews although actually our last one was with judd Apatow, yeah. we're, getting co we're getting comments one back. So because <laughs> we've changed our recording model, here's last but one comments. This is a little section of the podcast I call last but one comments, saying that Jen's never explained to me because she's too busy roaming the internet <laughs> for marriages to ruin. Here's some comments from a podcast ago. Gary Bridgeman says, an excellent podcast that points towards the uncomfortable truth that ending systemic racism needs to go beyond symbolic gestures and the tired ideas of yesterday. Yeah, I agree, Gary. Patty Platt go, love it. You always deliver such great information and in such an entertaining way. It's exciting to hear. Thank you for sharing your words of wisdom and your kind spirit with all of us. Well, I do you know, I'm happy to do that, Patty Platt. Kazi goes, Eager to learn, mate. Could you recommend some books, both non-fiction and fiction, to peruse and help cultivate the required state of mind? Read that book, Tribe, by... Who's it by, Jen? Sebastian Younger. By Sebastian Younger. And read... Read, read my bookie book by this incredible, innovative young author called Rusty Brandstein. One of the true... No? Not Rusty Brandstein? No. Syllable has a bad connotation there. Rusty. No, the other one. Steen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Harvey Weinstein. Oh, yeah, but and other <laughs> Jewish people. <laughs> like, no, you're right. Just Rusty Brand. <laughs> Helen Amory. As expected, a rich conversation between Rusty Rockets and Kahindi underscore Andrews, traversing this apparent reality we can educate ourselves about in the spiritual realm where we can know who we are before form and so live from wholeness and love. Thank you both. Well, you're going to love Eckhart Tolle if what you took from that radical revolutionary Kahindi Andrews was based on the spiritual realm. Eckhart Tolle is going to push you down a canyon. Dayo AKK. 
Russell Brand sharing his platform with straight-talking Kehinde Andrews, who was actually qualified to speak on race and actually letting him talk. That's allyship. And that's actually from me there. Just congratulating myself on being a great guy. And then there's the hashtag Black Lives Matter and then some other words as well. Now, thank you, Dale AKK, for making me feel good about myself for a second there. Now, let's get into this episode with uh, Eckhart Tolle. You're going to get hit with some home truths and perhaps you'll be like me, you're going to a trance-like state. Okay, if you're driving, do focus a bit on the material world because you may transcend. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not a successful route. Yes, that's, that's, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? Welcome to Russell Brand Under the Skin. Eka, I've ever since I've been doing this podcast, I've wanted to have you as a guest. So I'm very grateful to you for coming on. But also, isn't it extraordinary that um, that it's at this peculiar moment with the pandemic and with the hmm, what, how to describe what's happening in America, the the reemergence of civil rights. How what do you feel about this particular? historic moment. Do you think that something significant is happening? Well, yes, we live at the time of uh, great change and also a time of uh, uh, enormous adversity too, which started with the, the virus and uh, great change and uh, adversity are actually inseparable because uh, humans will not change unless they are faced with obstacles and adversity. So I, I believe there's a connection between the coronavirus and the this movement that just started now for racial equality and so on. Um, the virus presented the enormous challenge for millions of people. And every challenge is an opportunity for waking up. We may need to talk about what exactly I mean by waking up or awakening. It means, of course, uh, a challenge, whatever form it takes, whether it comes on a personal level, just affecting you, or whether a challenge happens collectively when once there's a huge challenge or some form of adversity that suddenly arises in the collective and it challenges millions of people. And this is what happened with the virus. And in the face of challenge, whether it's of a personal kind or a collective kind, uh, you, cannot, you cannot stay the way you are. You can go either one way or the other. So, so one way is a challenge makes you more unconscious. It pushes you into in deeper into ego, egoic reactivity and negativity and um, um, conflict with other human beings becomes magnified so one way, one effect that a challenge can have on a human being is it can make him or her 
more unconscious, more reactive, more deeply entrenched in the egoic patterns. Uh, the other thing, on the other hand, a challenge can have the effect of forcing you to become more conscious. Uh, and uh, I have experienced it in my own life when faced with the challenges of life before I went through a kind of shift in consciousness when I was 29. Uh, whenever something bad happened around me, I would usually go into reactive mode and uh, uh, become very unhappy or angry or even more depressed than I was already. And uh, so it's very important to, to realize that the importance of using the adversity that inevitably arises in everybody's life, often on a, just on a personal level or on a collective level, uh, to see, to recognize that as an opportunity for becoming more conscious instead of less conscious, for awakening out of the egoic mind patterns. So maybe I should talk for a moment about what I actually mean by awakening. Yes, and and what characterizes these egoic mind patterns? Those would be two areas to um, have good to have further detail on. Now, the the ego, uh, which is a mind made sense of self, a mind made identity, uh, that consists of. Uh, narratives, thoughts that you identify with. It's uh, the earliest, the, the earliest um, story about the rising of the ego is the myth of Narcissus. This is, of course, where the word narcissism comes from. And every ego is a kind of, uh, has very strong narcissistic elements to it. The story of Narcissus is there was a young man, very beautiful, in ancient in ancient Greece, and this young man, because it was a time before mirrors were invented, and before uh, we had uh, the wonderful invention of selfies, uh, he had never seen himself. And one day he looked into a pool of water and he saw his own reflection, and he was so fascinated by his own reflection. The story says that he fell in love with himself, but my interpretation is really that he became obsessed with himself, but not with himself, with the image of himself. And after that, he was no longer a happy person. There are various versions of that story, but his life didn't go well after that. So that, I believe, there's sometimes very deep wisdom in, in uh, embodied in mythology, in myth, it really what it points to is the arising of the human ego, which is a kind of phantom self that you carry around, that you mistake for who you actually are. Uh, it's, it consists of identifications, identifications with uh, possessions, identification with your own body, including, of course, the color of your skin. It's part of your own body identification with uh, things that you can do, abilities, things you know, uh, 
identification with all kinds of things. Now, what does it mean, identification with? It means you derive your sense of self from something that is not you. You so let's say it's it's my my car, uh, and it could start a poor little child who gets a toy car, and so the child is given a toy car, and the, that's the beginning of the ego. Is the feeling of the child? This is mine. So there's a certain identification with the the toy, a self identification. So it enhances because. It only works if another child does not have that toy, then it really works. This is my car. So it enhances a, a certain sense of identity. And identity is something that you, humans desperately seek after meeting the, the needs of shelter and food and shelter. One could almost say the next thing after that is the psychological need in human beings for a sense of identity. They need to, to that, and the first thing that humans do, and you cannot, you, you, there's, there's no preventing this. They seek an identity by identifying with this, that, or the other. Um, later, the adult may have a car and derives part of their sense of identity from having this car, but it only works because it's compared, the ego is comparative, the image in your mind of who you are. It only works because other people don't have it. So imagine you have a Rolls Royce, I assume you don't, but imagine you have a Rolls Royce and it enhances your sense of self. You, every time you look at it, you sit in it, you are seen by other people. It enhances your identity, your sense of self. Now imagine a scenario where, <clears throat> let's say there's a kind of a twilight zone. Suddenly you wake up in a reality where every human being at the age of 20 is given the same Rolls Royce. Everybody drives exactly the same Rolls Royce. Suddenly it would no longer serve to enhance your identity because you have nothing to compare itself to because you need the ego needs, ultimately, it seeks some kind of superiority. It, it compares itself to others in one way or another. It seeks some kind of superiority over others. It, it's an unconscious process. It wants to emphasize what I call your, your form identity. This is me. I want, and this is a normal process. It, there's no point in wanting to stop it from happening. A child needs to go that way. Uh, until finally an, an egoic sense of self has formed. Uh, and it, when we talk about identification, uh, what are we really talking about? Let's say you identify with a possession or with an achievement, or you identify with the way you look. Uh, and that could give you a happy identity, uh, because you look better than most. If you, that's, this is, that's a, for you, that's probably the case. Uh, for me, that was not the case. I did not look great. So I, when my ego was developing, it could not uh, enhance its identity by focusing on that because I, I, my body was not, didn't look great. And I, my ego, ego, ego was looking for other ways to identify with. But I assume in your case, for example, 
your ego and it grew to, to some extent identified with the way you look because the ego always seeks the most obvious thing uh, and uh, I would have been very happy to be as handsome as you when I was young but it was not the case I had to find something else to identify with and I finally found uh, intellectual knowledge I thought of myself I started reading books and I thought oh, I'm actually more intelligent than most people so an image formed in my mind that uh, this is me and there's always an unease behind it because the ego is ne never feels really at ease or fulfilled there's always an underlying sense of lack of insufficiency of not enough I am not enough because ultimately it's only a mental image that you mistake for who you are. It's often associated with a narrative in your mind that tells you about my life. You call it my life. Me and my life. This is me. This is my life. People have a relationship with themselves. Isn't that strange? They have a relationship with them. So this is why you have to... I love... I hate myself. I love myself. In both cases... Oh, it's better to love yourself than to hate yourself. But in both cases, there's a duality, there's a split that has happened. There's you and there's a self that you either hate or love. <laughs> so the question is, if there, if, you, if there is the self that you either hate or love, who are you? Who is the one that hates or loves that self? What, what is going on here? <laughs> the, the dog does not have that problem. Because the dog has not arrived yet at ego. The dog has no self-image. The dog does not live, or your cat, who I saw your wonderful video about the death of your cat, just very profound and beautiful, by the way. Thank uh, you. Your, your cat does, the animal does not yet have an ego. So the dog is itself. The dog has no problem with body image or self-esteem. <laughs> because the the dog is, and this is why most animals are more joyous than less problematic than humans. They do not carry the weight of the self, what the Buddha called the self. And the Buddha, the main one of the main teachings of the Buddha is to recognize the unreality of the self, that it is a mental construct that you mistake for who you are. So ultimately, even if you identify with a possession which seems to be out there, the only way you can experience a possession is as a thought form in your mind. So ultimately, all the egoic identifications come down to thought forms because that's the only way in which you can experience all these identifications. So ultimately, it all boils down to one thing. What you identify with is your thoughts, plus some emotions that go with those thoughts. So the ego ultimately is, of, when you first look at it, it seems identification, identification with all kinds of different things out there. But when you look at it more closely, all these different things that the ego identified with are all experienced as thought forms. So... The ego, then the essence of ego, can you could say is ident complete identification with thoughts. 
So, and the recurring thoughts in your mind that tell you who you are, uh, that's the ego. And for people who are unconscious of that, they are so in the grip of these thought forms that they are virtually asleep. There's nobody there other than yeah. the dream, the dream of thought, the, the phantom self. Uh, so waking up means to suddenly re recognize that the thoughts that go through your head continuously, but also the emotions that reflect those thoughts are not who you are. So even the first beginning of awakening, spiritual awakening, one could say, is to recognize that certain thoughts are continuously arising in your mind. And you, for a moment, you have stepped out of that and you recognize it's a stepping back, one could say. Or before your consciousness, one could say, was completely absorbed by these continuously arising thought forms. And you couldn't... You couldn't. You know how it is when when people are in the grip of the stream of thinking that never stops except when mm -hmm. you go to sleep, and you you're not aware, you're hardly aware of your surroundings, and everything you see is you interpret through the screen of the conditioned mind, which is the ego. It's a it's a very and you and this entity is ultimately a fiction, and so it is now coming back to adversity when you're faced with some kind of adversity or challenge in your life, then uh, the ego becomes very, uh, the unhappiness of the ego and the negativity of the ego gets greatly enhanced. So it, the adversity makes you very deeply unhappy or negative and reactive. It creates a lot of suffering, enormous amount of suffering. But even at the best of times, the ego needs some kind of uh, antagonist. It needs always the other because it de defines itself through the other, the, the one who is not different from me, who is not me. It needs, the, it needs not only the other, it needs to emphasize what I call the otherness of the other. It needs, so you have an, an encapsulated sense of self that depends on its survival for ultimately, to, to put it bluntly, having enemies out there. It needs the and it needs the other because its identity begins would begin to dissolve without the other. For example, uh, let's say in the case of race, let's say there's a person whose ego, ego is to a large extent defined by the, their their race uh, that uh, now whether it's black or white or yellow or what it may be so that but that is only possible because a certain segment of the people around you are of a different race then you can define your ego through identification with that and ego seeks enemies Implied in that is also that it seeks superiority. So it feels it needs to find some, it needs to tell itself that it's superior to somebody else. So if you identify with, if you, uh, uh, the perhaps the essence of racism, of course, is in the human mind. That's where it starts. Before racism becomes externalized as behavior, 
and then externalized further as uh, it manifests in the form of uh, economic and social institutions and systems that we create, before all that happens, the ego must, the, the root of the ego must be sought in the human mind. That's where it starts. And how does it start? It starts with identification with a thought form that says, this is me, I'm this color, and there's the other who is less than me. It starts with that. And that's a terrible thing. The ego does that. Uh, well, you, it, whenever you do that, it's not just, not just race. That's only one example. There are many other ways in which the ego does that. It can, when a person who is totally in the grip of the ego cannot meet you when you talk to this person or you come together. This person sees you through an image that he or she arises in their egoic mind that they have created for you. And they very quickly they create an image. They cannot relate to you. They relate to their own mental image of you. And that's a terrible thing to do to a human being. What you're actually doing is you're imposing an identity on the other and see the other through this fiction of an identity. And so you're never meeting that human being at all. You're only meeting the constructs of your mind. So there's always that total separation with the other. And that makes the great, the, that which uh, uh, makes you truly a human being, these qualities like empathy, compassion, Love cannot arise when you're trapped in the, in the egoic sense of self. The, the ego doesn't want these things. It cannot survive these things. So it's a false, it's a false sense of self that people live through. And the awakening can begin with realizing that you are not the thoughts that go through your mind. That's the beginning. Now, what has arisen at that moment? Awareness. Suddenly, you realize that there is a dimension of consciousness in you that's not thinking, but just conscious. That's the, that is the, the awakening. When you realize that you are underneath it all, all your sense perceptions, all your thoughts, underneath it all, there's this vast realm of conscious presence. There is a presence there, without which you wouldn't be able to perceive anything. You wouldn't be able to think anything. It arises, it's a little bit like, I compare it sometimes to, before you live on the surface of the ocean, you're a little ripple on the surface of the ocean. And this ripple only knows itself as a ripple. And it, is, it, it looks at other ripples and sometimes feels threatened by other ripples or wants to use other ripples to enhance its own sense of self. And it's always fearful. It always compares itself to other ripples. A very unpleasant and frustrating way to live. <laughs> uh, it hasn't realized 
the depth of its being, because the ripple is only a temporary expression of the vastness of the ocean. <laughs> it, but it doesn't know that. So if the ripple for a moment comes to us, if, if the, the continuous thought in this analogy, <laughs> the ripple, of course, is the human being. Uh, and the ripple, when the ripple, ripple stops thinking for a moment, and this is the key, for a moment, you come to a cessation of the stream of thinking. And what's left when you're not thinking about your, your history, your personal history, or the future? There's just, you're just becoming aware of this moment, yourself, this moment. But what is that self? It's no longer the historical self. All, you can't say very much about it. There is an underlying sense of presence, of a live conscious presence. It's still, it's alive. And it's, you, there's not much you can say about it. It's always been there. But it's always, before you realize that, uh, it, until then, it had been overlooked continuously. Because sensory perception and thought, especially thought activity, is so noisy that you are not aware of that underlying dimension. It's a bit like, let's say one could use another analogy. Um, this is a strange analogy. <laughs> let's say you are a room and the room wants to know, who am I? So the room would say, well, there's this furniture here, there's the sofa and the chairs and there's the table and there's the wall and the ceiling and the floor and there's this and that, that's, that's me. To describe itself in terms of content, the content. And then you ask the room, is there anything that you have missed that, that you are? No, because you're looking for more content. No, I've listed, this is all the content of that, who I, what I am. And... Then suddenly, perhaps, you point out, haven't you missed the essence of who you are? And that's the space that even, that's the space in this room is the essence of the room is not, not the content in the room. It's the space of this room. That's the essence. And, but the room had never been aware of that, <laughs> that its essence is this, this space that can never be destroyed. It is actually timeless. And in this analogy, that space is the space of consciousness within you. So you are not the content of your mind, ultimately, because the content of your mind, it's, that is your form identity that includes all the things that make, that constitute who you are on the level of form, which is the body, things you interact with, all the things, sense perceptions and thoughts. Every thought is a thought form. So you, on that level, are, and there's nothing wrong with form identity. You have to honor your form identity, acknowledge it, honor it. You can honor your form identity also racially. You can honor the, the, uh, the, the color of your skin and perhaps a cultural things that you're associated with your ancestors. You can honor all that. But, but if that is all you know, it's, it's not enough. You have this, you, you, 
that still keeps you trapped in a very limited sense of self and you continue to, you still need the other to be in some way inferior, whether whatever way. Or on the one hand, you honor the world of form and your form identity, your body also. You don't say, oh, I'm no longer believe that I'm my body, I'm not paying attention. No, you honor your body, you give it food, exercise, nutrition, you do the best you can, you honor it, but you're not confined by it because you realize that the, or all that is to do with the content of consciousness. So I call that sometimes object consciousness. That the two dimensions in your life, you have object consciousness, which is all the things that arise in your mind. Every thought is an object, an ob it's a form that arises. Every emotion is a form that arises. All this is object consciousness, and that's the content of your life consists of this. Lots of things continuously arising and subsiding, arising and subsiding. It's object consciousness. For most people, that's all they ever know in their life. And then object consciousness, when the, this is all, all you know and you know nothing else. You do not know the deeper dimension, which I call, it sounds a little bit like science fiction, I call it space consciousness. So you have object consciousness, which is your daily life, frustrating if you don't know yourself as the underlying space consciousness, then the own, or to only inhabit object consciousness is very frustrating because object consciousness is never satisfying for very long and it's continuously challenging, very frustrating. Uh, one damn thing after another arises. You, you sort out one thing in your life, another problem crops up there. You never, when you only live in optic consciousness, you have a feeling you never arrive anywhere. You're always trying to get somewhere. You never feel, I have arrived, and if you do, it's very short-lived. And then you realize, oh no, I haven't arrived. Whether it's fame or some kind of achievement or getting this or that, falling in love, I have arrived. No, you haven't. <laughs> <laughs> you haven't. The, so, so the same person that gives you the illusion that you have arrived because you've fallen in love, this person makes you happy. Two years later, the same person makes you unhappy. You haven't arrived. That's a wedding and divorce is what I'm talking about. So it's very common. All the, Nothing satisfies you for very long and things continuously leave you too. The Buddha talked about all that when he talked about the impermanence of all things. So this is object consciousness. Uh, in, object consciousness is frustrating and ultimately you will, you, and as you grow older, you become more and more disillusioned with the world and you think you become kind of, some often better and resentful and you've seen it all and it's all, your, all your opinions are very, rigid and fixed, you know it all and you've seen it all, don't tell me about this, I know, and you, you, your reactive patterns, because, and you've missed the most important thing in human life, which is the awareness of space consciousness. And when I say the awareness of space consciousness, it, it's an error that is through language. Language as a subject and an object 
But it's not the awareness of space consciousness. The awareness is the space consciousness. So in space consciousness, it's so, it's so simple to become aware of just for in a moment of no thought, but, but you haven't fallen asleep, you haven't fallen below thought. I call it, can either rise above thinking, like right now in this moment, I can see you. And in this moment, you are present, but not thinking. There's nothing to think about. And in this moment, I am present, but not thinking. I'm not preparing the next thing I'm going to say, it just comes out. And you are not preparing the next question you're going to ask, but it'll come, but you don't need to prepare it. So you become familiar with that state of spacious awareness. And that is your essence identity. To be rooted in that, it's ultimately very simple. I don't know why they don't teach that at school. I mean, the most important life lesson <laughs> is the transcendent dimension of, of, of life, of who you are. To find all the ancient teachings using different terms and different words, they all point to this possibility of realizing the transcendent dimension of who you are. Whether the Buddha calls it, the Buddha actually calls it, uh, the translation is sunyata, emptiness, uh, but a better translation would be spaciousness. Hmm. That's the essence of who you are, sunyata, spaciousness. Uh, Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven, uh, which in my translation is not, I translate it, kingdom I translate, is di I translate it as dimension, and heaven, which is the vast, heaven when you look up at the sky, that's the closest thing you can get to, to spaciousness in, in the sense-perceived world, the closest thing you can get to spaciousness is to look at the vastness of the sky or heaven. In many languages, heaven and sky is the same word. So you look at the vastness of sky, which is vast spaciousness. So the kingdom of heaven is the dimension of spaciousness. It's a dimension of consciousness that is possible to realize and is not usually difficult. This is why then they asked Jesus, where is the kingdom of heaven? When is it going to come? And he said, the kingdom of heaven cannot come with signs to be perceived. You can never say it's over here or it's over there. Because the kingdom of heaven is within you. In fact, he was saying, it is the essence of who you are. Consciousness, is, but it's not only the essence of who you are. It's the essence of the universe itself, because you are, you are just a microcosm of the universe. So when you realize the essence of who you are, the universe is realizing its own essence through you, this little thing, through you. It's, an, it's such an amazing thing. Why this is not common knowledge, I don't know. So humans have been asleep. It's occasionally people awake people where there's teachers and others we never heard of. I'm sure quite a few that we never heard of, that perhaps only were able to teach one or two people. And teach simply means to point the way. This go there. It's not 
it's not teaching in a spiritual sense, does not, not, not mean to add content to your mind. <laughs> so normally when you say teach, you add content to the mind. But spiritual teaching is, one could almost say, to remove content and realize the, that beyond the content of your mind, there's a vast dimension of spacious presence. And once you, you awaken to that, and so it starts with a simple thing, become aware of a gap between two thoughts. Become aware that when you first look at something, let's say you go out into nature and you look sun and you look up at a tree. And in, always in the first moment of looking, there's no mental mental noise because you're, t you're just there as a presence that's taking in the sense perception. Two seconds later, perhaps, the mind begins to interpret it and says something about it. But if you can catch the first moment, wherever, whenever you use your sense perception, you're listening to something, a sound suddenly arises, and you, you pay attention and you listen. And in that, that alert listening or that alert seeing when you first look at something, you can become aware that it's a natural arising of spaciousness. It's, you don't have to do a spiritual practice when you become aware of that. And when you become aware of that, that in the first moment of sensory perception, there's no mental interpretation yet of the sensory perception. When you become aware of that, that can actually be prolonged automatically. That the interval uh, of be before you name it, before you classify it, before you interpret it, there's an interval of still spacious presence. And that's a, that makes your whole life much more deeply enjoyable. You begin to actually enjoy this world of form, the object consciousness. Why do you enjoy it more now? Because you are no longer dependent on it for your deep sense of joy and satisfaction. So you're no longer at the mercy of what's either happening or not happening in your life. So you can allow this, pro this present moment to be as it is, because it already is. It would be madness to fight what is. Then you can take steps, yes, if to change things, and that uh, you... Be this is also the place where, of course, all intuition arises from that spacious presence, all creativity arises from that spacious presence, all, and what we call wisdom. Wisdom is a deeper intelligence, not just the analytical intelligence that can be, can, can be measured in I, with IQ tests. That's not that's a tiny fragment of intelligence, IQ tests. By the way, I can't do IQ tests. I, I, no, I give up every time I see an IQ test. I say, what is this? My mind just doesn't go there. <laughs> but I don't think it's, it's, an, it's a small aspect of intelligence. But there's a, what the world needs is not more knowledge, more intelligence, because if there's only intelligence without the awareness, the deeper dimension of the essence, there's leads to destructiveness. You can have, in, you need intelligence to build atom bombs. You need intelligence to build nuclear 
chemical weapons, the most absurd things, you need intelligence to do that, but there's no wisdom there. <laughs> so, I mean, the world is full of intelligent people, but not, not much wisdom. And if that continues, the and science, for example, is only a more focused, a, a more focused way of the, the mind being applied. Uh, science without wisdom, in, which is intelligence without wisdom, ultimately will lead to disaster. <clears throat> so this waking up is vital. It's and it's not. It's not hugely difficult. It's. Uh, I don't understand why. Why? Well, um, anyway, I mean, I, maybe I do understand because there's a what we are we are, we are coming. There is a the gravitational pull of thousands of years of evolution and of the, of the ego arising. So there's a thousand of years that we we carry around, and uh, it's an amazing thing that then there. There are human beings now. I believe there are more than ever human beings who are awakening. You are doing an important. You what the work that you do is also an important part of that because you're you're bringing consciousness to the world, and that's the that's the one thing that the world desperately needs tomorrow. And and then uh, let's. Uh, I don't know where what's happening now, where it's going. You asked when we started. You asked about the events that are happening now, uh, and of course the answer is you can. The, they can either go to, into egoic channels, and then they create more havoc. But eventually, that's fine too, because eventually that too will awaken you. It just means more suffering has to come first. Or it may be possible of people who want to bring about change that they are more conscious. And I always, I love it when I see people demonstrating peacefully is a wonderful thing. It's just a peaceful demonstration is where people are, you, you know, and a peaceful demonstration does not demonize other human beings. That's the important thing. If you start demonizing all groups of humans, uh, for example, because that is ego, that the and it's satisfying. It's so satisfying to the ego. I can say, look at these. Bring <laughs> all it, it it inflates the ego, which you can demon police. There's a lot that needs to be changed in the way policing. How and there are of course. Policemen who are or women who are whose ego gets enormous satisfaction from the power they have, uh, and the ego loves that to a very unconscious. But that it, it is absurd to say that uh, all police are evil. It's just totally absurd. There are many good human beings who do a very difficult job, and yet yes. We need to change the whole structure and the way that it is done. That's necessary. But then if we go further and, and then we go into another trap, which the egoic trap, and we could totally astray. Um, but that's fine too. If that has to happen, then you will regress. And regression in consciousness is, is, is also a way of 
evolving. And that's an interesting fact that the, the universe evolves not through order, the play between order and disorder, order and chaos, cosmos and chaos. Cosmos means order, chaos means disorder. So we need the two operate continuously, both in a person's life and in the life of the collective. We always think when, of course, we should strive for order in our lives. It's good to just to strive for building things up, creating things. It's all part of order, creating things, building things up and so on. But no matter whether you should strive for order, no matter how much you strive, you will encounter the eruption of disorder into your life in one way or another. It will, it cannot, because that's how the universe evolves. Everything, uh, when I walk in the forest here, uh, the forest is a coming together of chaos and order because when you look at the soil, it's full of decaying plants. There's death everywhere. Every All the vegetation, the soil, and the scent that emanates from the soil, it's dec decaying matter. This something dissolving, but the decaying matter is food for the new life that's arising. The two go together. And on a human level, the evolution of consciousness often needs a regression into disorder because, because before a new level of consciousness can be reached. Uh, in my own life also, I had to go into despair and near, I had to find, find a point of near suicide before an awakening happened. It was necessary. My life was just falling apart in my mind. <laughs> it was, I, I couldn't take it anymore. Complete chaos. <sighs> and it was, so it's often the case that uh, the regression is necessary for next level of evolution to happen. And uh, that's whether this is happening now, we'll wait and have to see it. But it, sometimes it is possible for evolution also to happen without the regression from time to time. <laughs> But uh, in this, uh, where we are now, it doesn't matter where it is. I see the whole, in long term, I'm very optimistic about the evolution of human consciousness. Not necessarily short term, but I'm a short term undecided, <laughs> but I'm a long term optimist because I know that the evolution of consciousness is inevitable because that's the entire purpose of the universe is the evolution of consciousness. The universe is an awakening being. It is one being manifesting through countless forms of life. But every form of life, whether it's a person or an animal or a tree, every form of life is a temporary expression that the one underlying being has taken. So there's this, and, and gradually this, this one underlying being uh, is in the process of creating this universe. It would be wrong to believe that the creation of the world is already finished or that the creation of humans is a fin 
if humans are finished product, it would be very sad. <laughs> You'd ask, can't do God? Can't God do better than that? If that's the but not humans. Humans is they're awakening an awakening species, and that's fine. So, I'm quite happy with the way things are going. If we need a regression, there's a French expression. Excuse my French, but it's reculer pour mieux sauter, which means something like to step back in order to jump better. When you want to jump, you have to go back first, and then you jump. So the, often the regressive step is necessary, but it's not perhaps always necessary. So we'll have to see. I've been speaking too much, um, perhaps. No, no, perfect. This tenacity of egoic consciousness that seems predicated on separateness how do you think it is a result of evolution that it is so tenacious this ability for it to reassert do you see many of our systems and cultures as the ongoing assertion of this energy has egoic consciousness become the priority for the organization of our systems our economic financial and political systems and also when you said like that we seldom experience that or that awareness of the numinous of the the the, the oneness I feel perhaps there are many things it perhaps in sport and in creativity and then just in family ordinary everyday life where what is being pricked or plucked is that awareness for those moments of awe and beauty that you can just have with an animal or a friend or watching a football match or watching a film I feel that that's when it reaches in beyond beyond these four forms this object consciousness and resonates within the space consciousness furthermore Eckhart if indeed we are part of this universal consciousness expressing itself through multiple forms how do we engage with that conceptually do because i sometimes feel well there must be such power in that there must be such power in this consciousness that, and, and indeed it's kind of beyond the my appreciation of time you know like time in oneness there is no time the the, the, the like you when you talked about the decaying forest floor it's only decay from a utilitarian perspective if you oh I can't eat that anymore but some other things can eat it so it's only when you objectify it that it matters so I suppose my feeling for a while has been after a time of infatuation with politics that unless there is a sort of a fundamental change on the on a level of our consciousness then there can be no material change because all things are an expression of the in a state all cultures are all systems are how, how could they be otherwise does that mean that it's our job to simply focus on our own individual awakening what what do you how do we activate this understanding that you're conveying well you're exactly right just the all the institutions and the systems that humans create 
must be a reflection of the collective consciousness, the general state of consciousness in humans. So the world that we create, the governments, the economic system, they're all, of course, created ultimately by the human ego. So as long as we are in the egoic state of consciousness, the external structures that we create are an expression or manifestation of that egoic state of consciousness and we'll, we'll have all the characteristics of the state of that state of consciousness. And that's absolutely true. Therefore, what the ultimately the real change must be within the individual human. And that awakening must be within. That is why my f- main focus is on the consciousness of on human consciousness, which is ultimately the universal consciousness. That's my main focus. It does not mean, however, that you that humans necessarily would say, "I'm not going to take any action in this world, and I'm not going to participate in social in interaction in trying to create better structures or whatever it is until I'm enlightened." <laughs> Or until I'm completely, I'm not completely awake, so I'm not going to participate. No, our challenge is to, as to as we participate, to stay as conscious as possible, so that we are not falling back into ego. So, the, but this only applies to humans who already know what I'm talking about, because they've had at least a glimpse within of what it is that these words point to. So you you can participate, but you have to. Everything you do has to be ultimately considered as a spiritual practice when you engage in talking to people, disseminating information, or even if you feel called upon to go on a protest march to so that you are you bring that presence into uh, everything you do and say so and be very much aware that in any situation the the primary thing that matters is not the situation that you want to deal with or whatever you want to do. Your, the primary thing is your state of consciousness at any given moment, which is the present moment. The primary thing so to become aware of your state of consciousness while you're engaged in doing, speaking, doing. And sometimes you, often you might catch yourself and see you've fallen back into a reactive state. You may catch yourself falling back into a deeply negative state. Uh, and that's fine. Every time you notice that, that you're in a ultimately a dysfunctional state of consciousness, that noticing is not dysfunctional. So when you notice that you have fallen back into ego, you're no longer an ego because the awareness is suddenly there again. The people who are completely trapped in ego have no idea that they are trapped in ego. Uh-huh. <laughs> they, because that, and that means it's the same with people who are, who are so-called in, insane or clinically insane. If you know that you are insane, you're not completely insane. Uh-huh. It still may be difficult, <laughs> but there's a knowing there. But if you're totally insane, you're... Totally in the grip of that 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 mind structure, the insanity. Then you don't know it. So we can engage with the world, 
but always realizing to be, to be very alert. I think that's perhaps the key word. As you engage, as you talk to people, as you take action, as you interact with people on social media, make sure that you're not you don't just type something in a reactive response. Uh, uh, Put, put out a lot of negativity, react to somebody who is very negative. Uh, it's easy to be pulled into unconsciousness yes. by other yes. unconscious humans, very easy. And so online you have to be doubly careful uh, so that you don't uh, engage in spreading unconsciousness into this world. So the the world is a... The, there was once a a 19th century thinker, French, French thinker, whose name escapes me, said, every nation has the government it deserves. <laughs> uh, there's some a lot of truth in that. It's not just government, it's all the structures. What does it mean, it deserves? It means it's an expression of the underlying collective consciousness or unconsciousness. That's how humans... And the thing is, no human can... Uh, display behavior that is beyond their level of consciousness. <laughs> so when when they do p silly things or bad things or violent things, that at that moment, that is an expression of their level of consciousness. They couldn't have done it otherwise. They were just not. This is why Jesus on the cross says, forgive them for they know not what they do. In modern terms, he would have said, Forgive them, for they are completely unconscious. Yes. They, are in yes. the, they are in the grip of certain energy movements, which is thoughts and emotions. They are in the grip of certain underlying energy movements. And they're, they're, hard, they're not even there, they're asleep. It's energy movements moving through them. So you have to be also very careful of what we might call the hive mind, especially in the computer age of social media and the hive mind so that this is the collective that suddenly the energy movements that can they flow into your mind and you, you think these are all your opinions and viewpoints no you have linked into the hive mind and the hive mind you have to be careful it's very likely that the hive mind is not conscious but unconscious hmm. that yeah. there's a lot of ego in it and you you recognize it easily if other people are demonized or condemned continuously, or groups of people. Then you know you're in you're in the collective hive mind, the egoic collective mind. Very dangerous. It's interesting that we live in this atheistic time with its fixation on materialism, intelligence, and logic. This sort of certainty that everything can be measured and technocratically measured that you can harvest data and observe people's behavior and predict their actions as a result that there is a determined i would say removal of the sacred and for i have i feel eckhart that unless people engage with the idea of the sacred by which i mean oneness love divinity and that to use one of your earlier analogies that beneath our temporary ripple form we are participants in 
one ongoing phenomena of beingness unless that somehow unless our systems are organized on that principle we will continue to perpetuate conflict we but and what is i think so difficult is how do you like when i think about my you know myself which that's basically all i do i i, I recognize that I, i'm continually stimulated by fear and desire and sometimes this fear and desire is you know internally manufactured i'll just start getting frightened about something that might have happened or i'll get frightened about something that has happened in the past or desire i should have this i should have that i want people to think of me this way but but i i noticed that whilst these are sort of indigenous traits fear and desire being sort of fundamental to human survival to to obviously fundamental aspects of human survival these are also ideas that are promoted, stimulated, uh, like a sort of an ever-present, almost pornographic objectification and sort of, uh, in sort of the titillation of sex, which is sort of, a, I suppose, changing somewhat because of identity politics. But even identity politics, to a point you made earlier, is about identification. And I can understand why people that are from uh, oppressed, marginalised, neglected or ignored groups would want to assert that their identity is as valuable as any other identity but uh, but i can sense that that there is a, isn't a, a yet an, a, an emergent recognition that actually we are beneath the outward expression of uh, of ourselves is more important than the choices or otherwise that we use to express our outward self so. yes that's very true and so one could almost say we need to learn to live in two worlds. One is a world of form. Uh, That's you as a person, not only the physical form, which includes, of course, we talk about race, color of your skin, physical. That's perfectly fine. We're not dismissing it as totally irrelevant. I do, wouldn't want to go there and dismiss the world of form as totally irrelevant uh, on, uh, because you, if you do that, the world of form, if you'd say, oh, it's all, or you could say it's all, the form is all illusion. Some people say that on the deepest level, it's, it's kind of true, but I don't, don't want to go there. Uh, if you if you dismiss the world of forms, it's all illusion. I don't have anything to do with it anymore. Uh, you're in for a very rude awakening because the world of form will challenge you, even if you deny it. It will challenge you. It's here to challenge you. It's not here to satisfy you. It's here to challenge you. But you have to instead of the. Uh, um, some in some spiritual traditions, uh, there was complete turning away from the world, and I don't think that is the way to go, especially for us now. To to accept the world of form, and as I said before, to honor it, uh, to that is also important, and that includes uh, racial consciousness, for example, to see that. Your race is actually the great value in that. In there's a whole, there's a huge tradition. There's all your ancestors and so on. You for black people or native, especially native people too. 
They have all the, the suffering of their ancestors that goes back centuries. And all that is important to recognize and to become aware of. Uh, and you, they might find that within themselves as what I call the pain body. The pain body is accumulated emotional suffering from the past. Your personal past, suffering from childhood, it doesn't just disappear. It, it leaves traces, energetic traces in you of pain, emotional pain. And humans carry this pain body, which is like an, a little entity uh, that periodically comes up and wants to actually experience more pain. So I call it the pain body. In relationships, people often have it every two weeks or whatever. They go through their drama. The pain body overreacts to something because this energy field of emotional pain that lives in you, almost autonomous kind of <laughs> a little being, <laughs> not happy. <laughs> it's suffering from the past emotion. It lives in you. And of course, that comes, wants to come up periodically because it needs more suffering to feed on in personal relationship. It does it through drama. It, it presses the other person's buttons. It wants an emotional reaction. It wants the drama. It wants, and once it's in it, it doesn't want to, it wants it to continue. And that goes on for a while until it's taken, absorbed enough energy from, it's the same energy frequency, one could say, that uh, it, it, its own being is this energy frequency of pain and drama and unhappiness. That's a personal pain body. It can feed on your mind too. It can The emotion rises up into your mind and then controls your thinking. But And so when you're not aware of it, the pain body is the emotional aspect of ego, a very destructive emotional aspect of ego. When you're not aware of it, it becomes part of your ego. When it amplifies what you think, then your thinking becomes deeply negative, either about yourself, about life in general, about other people or groups of people, whatever, about God. It's very negative. And so your thinking is controlled by emotion from the past. Another aspect of the pain body is the collective aspect. It's not just personal. Every country has a certain energy field, which is the collective pain that has accumulated in the energy field of that country, the psychic psychic energy field of the country. Some countries have a much heavier pain body than others. If you're sensitive, you can feel it when you arrive in a country. You step out of the plane. Well, nowadays you don't fly anymore, but that, anyway, the, you step out and... And you can already feel, just sometimes it's a heaviness in the energy field. Uh, countries like Germany and Russia have a fairly heavy pain body. Uh, I can always feel that when I arrive first, uh, because there's been a lot of suffering in those countries, and enormous suffering on a collective scale, both uh, suffer, suffering self-generated, and also suffering that has come from elsewhere. In the case of Russia, the suffering created by the first the Tsarist regime and the Russian Revolution and the horrible communist regime, then the 
invasion of Russia through Germany and incredible suffering of millions and millions, dreadful, and the, the suffering inflicted by communism on Russian people, millions and millions died. Germany, everybody knows the suffering that self-generated in part Germans, um, um, the Holocaust, the wars, and so on. So there's suffering in the energy field. In in Russia, I was in Russia, but this, the suffering often means that there's a greater readiness for spiritual awakening. There, I saw in Russia, for example, I went to Russia a couple of years ago to give a talk. There's an enormous longing for spiritual awakening because the, they know the suffering, they, they can feel the suffering. I've never been to Russia before. Uh, when I, it's the biggest talk I ever gave in Moscow, 6,000 people. Never been there before. And in, in Russia, I could see when you walk in the streets or go into a shop, people very rarely laugh, <laughs> smile. You have to be serious. The first couple of days, I smiled a lot, and people looked at me as I was insane. And then after, on the third day, I said, okay, I'm going to just be serious too. <laughs> and then I got a compliment uh, a couple of times. People said to me, oh, you look Russian. <laughs> so I was fitting in. Uh, <clears throat> I didn't smile anymore. But, but, but that in the Russian soul, the Russian collective wants enormous longing for spiritual awakening. So often it's the case that people or in countries where the pain body is heavy, those people are also very often at a greater point of readiness than somebody in whom the pain body is still relatively light. Because why are you because you are continuously experiencing suffering that's generated by your pain, by pain, whether it's personal or collective. Interesting, even in countries like Canada and the United States, uh, in many ways they're very similar culturally and so on. Uh, when I, occasionally I, I drive across the border from United States into Canada um, or the other way, and it's this the landscape is the same, everything is the same, and yet the moment you cross the border when you go into Canada, you feel a, more of a lightness, a bit more. You can suddenly, you can suddenly breathe, take a, a sigh of ah, oh, it's more gentle energy field. Uh, when you drive back into the United States, a more nervous energy field. <laughs> It depends where in the States you are, such a huge country. There are different energy fields in the States, of course, many different energy fields. But as a whole, it's more, there's a more nervous, much more nervous energy field. But of course, it's also more dynamic. So that's another aspect of it. Do you think these energy fields are a reflection of culture and human activity? Or do you believe that the land itself, almost the geology and geography, might have character that 
comes through places that you know the subject of psychogeography there's a place in london eckhart uh where they uh, near tottenham court road uh, the area of st giles this place was when uh, there was the gin epidemic of the 18th century in london this was where all the gin houses were and then when i was a drug addict you know three or four hundred years later like that was where you would like the last resort if you can't get heroin anywhere else that is the place you go every so often they try to gentrify this area they've tried again actually with a sort of an international rail link but there, it's like there's something in the energy there that is in this case to do with addiction uh, hedonism self-destruction somehow um I, I wonder if there's some character there and while i'm on this little flow i sometimes feel that in addiction when you watch people with very severe uh, uh, addictive tendencies or chemical dependency, it is like they're trying to destroy themselves, but ha- are going about it in the wrong in the wrong way. It reminds me of the you know the your famous uh, phrase, "I cannot live with myself any longer." A lot of addicts will use idioms like, "I want to get." off my head i want to get out of my uh, off my face i i can't stand myself people are trying to escape from themselves it's like the impulse is a spiritual impulse for, but there is no culture no mechanic no teaching no tradition to guide them very true so there is often in uh, addiction uh, could also be alcoholism there's a an unconscious longing to be free of yourself of the self because it's such, it's experience is such a burden to live with yourself, and I, I experience it too. But many people, who are there, they they go to the to the drugs because, as you just said, the the self is experienced as something very heavy, and it, it's a burden. And then what they do is, they they by the intake of these things. Uh, temporarily frees them from themselves. But of course, they always have to come back. But how does it free them? It frees them from themselves by taking them below thinking. Mm-hmm. It takes you below thinking. And that's one way of becoming free of the self because the mm-hmm. self is mind-generated. It's a mental image. If you go below thinking, you can. it gives you temporary relief. <laughs> You can also have that sometimes people um, just before they go to sleep, you're already halfway between the state of wakefulness and sleep, and you can suddenly feel this enormous sense of well-being as you move towards the unconsciousness of sleep because you've been freed from yourself and all your problems and all the turmoil in your mind. You're so tired that you don't remember the turmoil of your mind anymore. So you're falling below. This is one way of becoming free of thinking is to fall below thinking. But that is not the way for, for humanity is not destined to regress to a pre-egoic state, to a pre-thinking state. That's a wonderful state for animals and nature to be in. Uh, but for us humans, our destiny is to rise above thinking doesn't mean we don't think anymore but we transcend thinking in the sense that we are no longer trapped in the movement of our mind 
We rise above it. We experience awareness, that is alertness without thinking, when we want to. And then we can think more productively and more creatively. So we're not, we transcending doesn't mean that we completely believe, think we need, still need our minds. We need to think, but not the destructive, problem-making thinking of the egoic mind, which is lack of awareness. Our destiny is to become free of the self by rising above it, transcending, not falling below. So, but people who, it's sometimes people who are spiritual, ready for spiritual awakening and they go the wrong way. They feel the, the, they feel the heaviness of the self, but nobody has taught them that it is possible to rise above instead of having to fall below thinking, before the, the thinking mind. So our destiny is to rise above. And then we don't need all those things anymore that take us below the thinking mind. I tried a few drugs because sometimes, some years ago, people asked me questions sometimes. So I thought, in order to answer the questions about drugs, I need to try some, because what can I say if I've never taken them? So I I tried, of course, pot when we were in Amsterdam. <laughs> and uh, I can see what it does to people. They, they smoke and you can feel that kind of wooziness coming over you. And uh, then... Uh, I saw it, it was good to experience it. I much preferred my normal state of consciousness, so I was very happy to come. And I was still aware even while it was happening. So, but okay, I thought, okay, I don't need this again. I know I know what it's like. I also tried acid, LSD, uh, on another occasion many years ago. And uh, again, because I, I needed to know what people are talking about. And what I experienced was. Uh, an enormous amplification, for example, of sensory perception, as if everything was shouting at you. Every sense is enormously amplified. The sense of smell, of touch, visual things. I was looking at the wall and the wall was alive. It was throbbing. It, the wall went boom, boom, boom. And was everything, the water had a certain smell to it. Everything was amplified. The world was shouting at me. And of course, I didn't experience it as particularly pleasant, but I know why some people feel drawn to it, because it cuts out your thinking mind, because everything, the experience is so overwhelming that the whole conceptual mind stops. So it can give a person a glimpse of what it also, I mean, sometimes you the miraculous nature of simple things, you hold up a you hold up a glass of water or something and say, this is so amazing. And, you... <laughs> and it is. I mean, ultimately, it is amazing. Uh, but before you didn't realize it because you experience all the world all, only through your conceptual mind. Everything becomes immediately conceptualized. So you, you inhabit a dead concept. Which con it's not only a conceptual universe. Your whole identity is a conceptual identity, which is ego. <laughs> mental, a mental, mentally fabricated identity, and to be taken out of that. So, for some people who are very much trapped in their conceptual mind, I imagine 
it's a revelation to, to, to experience something without the interference, without, without this dense screen of conceptualization. And you say, wow, the world is so miraculous, which it, it truly it is. But uh, I think for some people it might be an, an opening to have, to have that experience. But if you become dependent on something for you to experience that, ultimately it will lead you astray. It will not ultimately help you to rise above thinking. It will eventually take you below thinking. So or it can be an opening perhaps for some people, as uh, I mean Huxley wrote about it, uh, the doors of perception and so on. Uh, it, can be an, it can be an opening, but once you know the state of presence, it's all, it's so much, so much more beautiful and alive than anything you could experience through any kind of substance. And uh, so again, I never needed to experience it again, but now at least I can answer questions when people ask me, what's it, is LSD like this or that? I, I, I say something about it. <laughs> With some natural psychedelics, which I, I have not experienced actually, I, I just took LSD when I was younger, people talk less about the heightened sensory experience and more about the uh, dissolution of the self and in, in cases of some psychedelics a real engaged experience with an other entity often personified uh, elsewhere feeling like a spirit of nature and as a person in recovery I don't drink or use drugs one day at a time when I hear these descriptions I feel like I, the excitement and attraction that I feel I believe is a kind of mobilization of my own intuitive knowledge that there is a god that there are other frequencies of consciousness that are operating that is possible for us to experience and indeed when you talked about like that sensitivity and intuitive awareness of the character of land and different countries and places having pain bodies and frequencies i can see that if you're i because i've you know all the time while you're speaking I, I i'm aware that i find it really hard to not think i my mind is very very busy i need to be sort of quite particular i know from speaking to you before that you don't meditate you just remain continually present it's not like you go off for 20 minutes or half an hour or anything like that and i i, I feel that obviously you had um you know, a kind of very stark epiphany that seemed like, you know, one day you were this person and the next day you were another person. And uh, uh, the awareness behind the person, I suppose, to use your terminology and your own explanation. Um, but like for me, I do sometimes experience transcendence awareness. It, during this conversation I have, when I focus very much on what you're saying, I feel free and I'm completely present in the, in, in the moment. But I have always had this tendency to return to carnality, always had this tendency to return to wanting, always had this tendency to, to return to caring about what other people think about me and if I've got enough status. You know, I, I, I seem to have a lot of this, whatever it is that weds people to materialism, and to the conceptual mind, uh, it feels strong in me. What do, what do I do about that? Um, well, you don't really need to do anything because if you uh, attempt to get rid of something that you observe, then you very often uh, give, give it more energy 
if you fight something, you give it more energy. Uh, that's why, for example, the war against drugs didn't work. <laughs> the war against anything doesn't work. So uh, to be as much aware as you can, even as a desire arises for whatever it may be, to be aware that there is a desire arising and just be there as the observing presence. Mm. For some people, for example, that's probably not the case with you, some people are addicted to food, food intake, as to in order to fill some gaping void that they experience or to dull the pain that they experience. And they often, they find themselves already munching something and they didn't even know how it got into their mouth because the movement was unconscious. If you can observe a desire, if it's food or if it's drink, uh, desire arising to go to the fridge and get out the chocolate cake, so you feel the desire rising, that's already an enormous gain in consciousness if you can feel the desire rising instead of just being the desire. Uh, so if you can if you can feel it in, and instead of condemning yourself for it, be I, I would sometimes recommend to have a little gap before you do what the desire wants you to do. Have a little gap. Let's say the desire says, "I've had a tough day," because sometimes desires are associated with mental explanations that to justify what you're going to do. For example, it says. Well, that's the only thing that, that, that still I, I'm not going to renounce drink because it's the only pleasure I, I've left in life. I deserve it. Everything else has been taken from me. It's the only thing that I have, for example, kind of justification. Or says, okay, I've had a tough day again. I deserve a treat. I'm going to have that chocolate cake. Uh, that's fine. So if you can observe not only the desire can exist on purely energetic level, as a longing, a pull, it can also at the same time exist on the level of uh, uh, verbalization in the mind. It could justify why you deserve it, why you need it, why you want it. And you can, if you can observe that and just delay it for a couple of minutes before you actually do it, instead of wanting to completely suppress it, <laughs> uh, give it, give it a couple of minutes or so to simply observe the, the, the energy behind that desire or to observe what your mind is saying, to just be with it. That, that increases your consciousness, your awareness grows through it. And even perhaps it's still so strong that you still do it, but at least there's still an awareness there. You're no longer totally in the grip and then not fall into the mistake of condemning yourself afterwards yeah. because that's ego too if you, you condemn yourself as you see i'm not good enough you can't because you know self-talk many people have self-talk in their head they talk to themselves either they say i or they say you they have two people that argue with each other so it says so why can't you see your all your spiritual practice is useless you can't do it you always always fall back to the same you're no good and then the other one says, yeah, but I can't help it. I, des I deserve a little bit of pleasure. What's left? <laughs> it's all the mind talking. Uh, <laughs> can you be aware of that? And, and if, if that awareness grows and you use all these opportunities for just a bit of bringing to us some awareness, 
and, and gradually the the force of the desire will diminish if you bring more awareness in and then you then there's an a space around it it's no longer all consuming now of course there are some drugs that are so destructive that heroin for example uh, now heroin is one i'm not going to try even though people might ask me about it <laughs> but it's very nice <laughs> i have known people who had um, how destructive it can be for many many people where the the question is whether that uh, <clears throat> that awareness is there in a human being uh, already whether that's not something that you can just bring about um, it's almost like grace to have a minimum of awareness that suddenly is in you and perhaps it comes through suffering for many people eventually it bring, brings you to an awareness I've met many people in my retreats and uh, talks who have come through a, a what's it called AA Alcoholics Anonymous that has been an opening for many people into the spiritual dimension and so then retrospectively you can say you can even become thankful for your for the addiction because it's if eventually it leads you to an awakening then retrospectively the addictioning actually was a good thing it any any pain any suffering that you have been through if it leads you to this point of awakening retrospectively all even if it all while, while you were in it it was completely meaningless suddenly it has meaning it's brought you here all the suffering has brought you to this point of where you see the possibility of awakening and transcending and realizing the transcendent dimension to who you are which is also the transcendent dimension of life itself and so it's all worth it thank you since you had that uh, awakening you which for me it sounds like your experience was about pain body depression suicide um you do not feel it like when was the last time that you had to be aware of desire or fear rising up in yourself and if it isn't very often do how do you consume culture how do you participate in a culture that for me seem you know as we've discussed is a manifestation of that kind of egoic consciousness and continually tries to sort of attach uh nodes onto you to electric like sort of electrify you into fear and desire what happens when do you experience it do you ever experience it the original phenomena and i can i enjoy things some uh enjoy sometimes i enjoy a glass a couple of glasses of wine with dinner uh do i have a desire i suppose it could be called a desire i, I would be um if i didn't have it it would be fine too so it's not a i don't i don't really have much desire for anything my my favorite sometimes people ask me what do you do for fun <laughs> um they say fun um actually my most uh enjoyable 
moments are the times when I'm not doing anything at all. I just enjoy the being of this moment. Mm. Uh, it could be contemplative. Sometimes I just sit here and look out of the window at the trees. I look at the sky. I breathe. I look at items of furniture. And it's just so peaceful and wonderful, everything around me. And uh, so the really, and I could sit here for some half an hour or an hour just in it's it is so beautiful uh i suppose that's my fun what's not what usually would be called fun but the to be to to, to be in to, to feel the being now being is another word for what we're talking about uh to feel ultimately so it's not just what you see when you're contemplative we con contemplate things Contemplate, by the way, is related to temple. It's sacred. There's something sacred to it. Contemplation. It's so oh. if real contemplation, there's something sacred because you mentioned the word sacred earlier, which is a word that you hear very rarely in the modern world. I haven't heard the word sacred on CNN recently or in the New York Times. Sacred, sacred is a rare word because most people have no idea what you're talking about, but sacred is in a very important dimension. It's, it's an aspect of exactly what we are pointing to here. So when you, when you contemplate the world around you and in its beingness, the trees, but even so-called inanimate objects are actually like sometimes to just, you touch them, they're there in their simple beingness. And what, what I, what really underlies all that is feeling within the joy of just being, the joy of being alive, of being. Uh, and that is what the, in, in, in India, in the Indian Hindu tradition is called Satchitananda. Satchitananda are three words that are strung together as if we're one word. Sat means being, chit means consciousness, and ananda means bliss. So if you string these together, being, consciousness, bliss is a single thing or no thing mm. to realize. What, so when you are in that state of satchitananda, it's, it's a simple realization that you are the beingness of you. But when I say you, it goes far beyond what you think of yourself as a person. You have transcended who you are as a person because your personal history has become totally irrelevant. You can, you can, whether you are sit, whether you sit on your private jet or in a prison cell, you can sense such it under within yourself. But it's more likely that you will sense it in the prison cell than in your private jet. More likely. So. To, to to that that is the deepest the deepest joy to I find the deepest joy then in the in the beingness the be, beingness so because we could divide again what, what we uh, are talking about the two dimensions we could use the terms doing and being these are the two aspects of life the doing is to do with to cause Time is needed to do anything. You need future to do anything. You need time comes in. You're active. All thinking is doing. 
when you think you're doing something, you're doing the thinking. Well, you're not, in many cases, you are not doing the thinking, but the thinking is done for you. <laughs> it possesses you. You don't, people say, I think. They don't think. In most cases, when there's no awareness, thinking happens to you. <laughs> you're not thinking. <laughs> the mind is, is, has a life of its own. In the same way, you wouldn't say, I'm beating my heart. The heartbeat is happening to you. But this is also true in the absence of awareness. You are just possessed by the thinking mind. It does what it wants to do. And you think you are it. <laughs> so that's just an aside. <laughs> so the doing, thinking is doing also. The doing dimension, there's always the next thing that you need to be concerned with. Where, what, what do I do now? What do we do next? Some people, doing is all they know. Again, the same thing we talked before. Families, if you go to families, children, have you done your homework? Have you done now? Do this, brush your teeth, do that. <laughs> the only way they relate to their children is through some kind of either they say stop doing it or do it. <laughs> so all, that's all there ever is, and there's something so vitally missing, and that's the being dimension to be able to look at your child, to be able to listen to your child, to give them. Your complete attention, but not conceptually, but in that spacious awareness to look at a child, to recognize their beingness. But only the, that is only possible if you recognize your own beingness and then you recognize the child's. Now, the children, uh, they know when that is not there in the, in the family, in the home, in the family they realize unconsciously that something is missing because all you, you only operate on the level of doing. And they then as they grow up and then they reach uh, 13 years old, often they become more and more unhappy. Many children these days become more and more unhappy. And, and even before that age, many children uh, have... Uh, attention deficit syndrome, whatever it's called, talk restlessness. And uh, of course, yes, something has to do also with the continuous use of electronic devices, iPads and all that stuff. Yes, that has something to do with it too. But there's also the lack of the being dimension in the home environment, in the parents, because ultimately the child has never been recognized. That's in the, for who they are in the depths of their being. All, all, all interaction has been taking place on the level of doing, which is a level of mind. Of course, well, they're all well-meaning parents because they want to do the right thing for their children. <laughs> but but no, no matter how much, how much doing you do in wanting to do the right thing for your child, no doing is ever enough if you neglect the dimension of being. So that's essential. The, again, the two worlds, we, we need to have one foot in the world of doing and one foot in the world of being. Most of the world that we know is lost in the doing dimension, which means the transcendent, ultimately the sacred, the transcendent dimension is missing. And that's why... Um, I would a society needs to survive needs some access to the transcendent dimension for to give people 
in traditional religion, yes, traditional religion has been 90% mind stuff, 90% egoic also, identification with belief structures, ideologies, making others wrong, all ego, we are right, you are wrong, all ego power, 90%. But there's always, I'm just, it's kind of arbitrary figure, 10, 10%, it's still provided, 10% is a very small opening into the transcendent. Even if just by mentioning, reading some of the parables of Jesus or few deep passages from, there are some incredible jewels in the Bible. There's a lot of mixed stuff there. Of course, in the Bible is many, many books written by many people. So there are some great spiritual jewels here and there. And then there's a lot of cultural stuff too, uh, that's cultural, very limited understanding. But uh, anyway, religion uh, has provided traditionally a small glimpse for some, for quite a few people still, uh, just a glimpse of the transcendent. For example, looking at Jesus on the cross, uh, which at first means it seems a strange thing. If you come with an extraterrestrial here, you might think, why do these people have on their knees in front of a person who is nailed to the cross? This is so weird. But if you look more deeply, there too, it could, if it's used rightly, it's not always used rightly, hasn't all, it could have been some open, for many people it was a small opening into transcendent dimension. How? by identifying with Christ. The suffering of Christ is also my suffering. We are, we both, we are going through this suffering and it gets, gets you to a point of surrender or acceptance of what is, the isness. And that's an opening into the transcendent dimension. Any point of acceptance, even accepting the unacceptable in the present moment, doesn't mean if, if action is possible, you take action. But in this moment, you accept, especially if death approaches, or you're very sick, all this, you suffer greatly, enormous loss in your life. Humans, millions of humans continuously have experienced and experienced these things. There are points when only surrender will, is a possibility for you to be free of suffering. And so you look at the image of Jesus, what does it point to? It points to join you join these St. Paul talked about that too. The suffering of Christ is my suffering. So you through identifying with the archetypal figure, one could say Christ is the archetypal human, and it shows what is possible because it's it's Christ is nailed to the cross. But the cross, which is a torture instrument. So he is nailed to the torture instrument. But the cross has a double meaning. The cross is also a symbol for the divine. So especially, so sometimes you see just the cross, just the cross. The cross is a symbol for the divine. The cross is a torture instrument also. And bring the two together, which shows that one important portal a very important portal and traditionally for most humans into the transcendent dimension is suffering and the acceptance of suffering.
and that is that is there in the that way traditional religion not the ideology of it but this direct experience has traditionally offered an, a, a portal into the transcendent and that for many people has disappeared now so um, in many countries traditional religion is kind of become quite meaningless but that's that's just so it has, has taken away from humans that so that many humans are at an intermediate stage now that has been taken away from them or has dissolved they can no longer believe in which is understandable they cannot believe in mythology anymore that's all all that uh, but they haven't yet found access to the transcendent dimensions through another way which of course is spiritual teaching comes in but many humans have not yet had contact with any spiritual teaching so we can now go beyond uh, needing to if religion does not work anymore for a human being which started with Nietzsche and Nietzsche said God is dead <laughs> of course he, he meant that the God that we that we created in our minds that's uh, so the 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 access to the transcendent um, it's very important to um, to have that in your life if you don't have that transcendent dimension then life is just a veil of tears uh, and frustrating and that is suffering Buddha said Dukkha suffering all life is suffering Dukkha wherever you go Whatever you do, you will find dukkha, which is translated as suffering. Other translations are unsatisfactoriness, insufficiency, misery, or just plain unhappiness. That's dukkha. Wherever you go, whatever you do, you will find dukkha. That sounds very negative, but the other part of his teaching is in his own words, he said, I show you suffering and the end of suffering. <laughs> Meaning, I show you how you create suffering by your unconsciousness with the, with the self, which is a fiction. And I show you the Buddhist teaching is also to, to realize the kingdom of heaven, which the Buddha calls emptiness or spaciousness which is a dimension of consciousness in you if you don't find it then life is suffering the end of suffering is finding the transcendent dimension then life is still challenging but the challenges of life are no longer converted into suffering that's the miracle yes. I can see that how like fun and pleasure are an unconscious attempt to kind of defibrillate the bliss that you described, uh, Satchit Ananda. It's a, uh, an external way of trying to vivify this dormant bliss that is lacquered into stasis by the uh, dominant egoic consciousness. I like what you said about the image system around the crucifixion that the god made god made flesh must suffer must die in order 
to be reborn as God consciousness, as aware consciousness, after some time in the cave as well, after some time in the darkness of the cave. I was thinking too about what you have said, Eckhart, in the um, recent both mathematical well, primarily mathematical analysis of the universe reveals that it's likely, because I believe that it's true, but from even from a mathematical perspective, possible that consciousness is a, a intrinsic part of the universe, not evolved from matter, which is no no different from the paradigm of there is a creator, there is awareness, there is God in a an even shorter word. And I, I like what you said, too, about it being a kind of intermediary way, an uh, intermediary moment, a shrugging off of the old orthodoxies and uh, institutions, but not yet a recognition of the all-encompassing sacredness trying to really realise itself in the present. Of course, the thing that you have um, perhaps best known for is this uh, be here now, presence now, the power of now and it seems to me that 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 is a uh, your teaching often returns to come back to now you said once to me you know that when you the minute you finish teaching that's it now you're not that identity anymore now you are the you rem so that you are using sent the senses and awareness as kind of instruments of the sacred to continually bring you back to the presence whether it's feeling the energy of your own body or using your senses to observe what's happening <sighs> yeah I've, I've understood some things yes wonderful thank you thank you so carry on with the wonderful work you are doing to bring consciousness yes that's what's needed i will do that i will do this this i this is I've gone back and forth all my whole life between ego and purpose, ego and purpose. I get purpose, like I recognize something and it feels very clear to me and then my ego comes in and claims it and makes it its own and then everything falls apart and explodes for me. This time I'm very determined to, well, not I'm and very determined. I will just try to stay present and uh, trust God. But thank you very much for showing me uh, and showing everybody so much clear wisdom in such a simple, accessible, humorous and funny way. I do lots of stand-up comedy about you. I don't know if I've told... One day you will see the stand-up comedy show that I do and I think you will like it. There's, impress there's impressions of you... There's quotes from you. There's lots of things in my most recent show. So uh, hopefully you'll see that soon. Oh, thank you. Great. Great. Thanks, Russell. Thank you, Eckhart. Thank you for spending so long. It's the longest podcast I think we've ever done. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Under the Skin with me, Russell Brand and Eckhart Toll. Let me know what you thought of it on Instagram. I'm at Russell Brand on there, at Rusty Rockets on uh, Twitter. Sign up to my mailing list. I actually am going to do something interesting on there. Guess what I'm going to do? A Zoom call of entertainment Q&As. Although I will be able to mute and unmute you all at my will. So uh, go there to get exclusive content and exclusive live performances. In the meantime, if you enjoyed this conversation with Eckhart, why not check out some other episodes? Byron, Katie, Michael, Beckwith, Jay, Shetty, they're on there. Also, check my YouTube channel daily for new radical videos thanks for listening to under the skin from luminary